welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 38. Great guest this week. I'm really excited to talk about a lot of really important issues. Important because they're about the environment. Important because they're about politics. And important because they're about the election in many ways. And all of these issues are connected as I try to bring up every single week here on this show. But before I jump over to the guest, I want to make my pitch for Counterpunch. The print magazine, what a great resource this is. Every time it comes in the mailbox, I mean, I get a little bit of I get a little bit of excitement because I love seeing the artwork, I love the columns, reading Jeff's pieces, reading uh, Chris Floyd, reading all of the uh, regular contributors, reading the special articles. Always good. Matter of fact, just thinking about print. I, I really appreciate a print magazine. There's so few of them. I don't really have subscriptions to anything but Counterpunch. Everything we read online on our e-readers and what have you, Counterpunch kind of sticks out in my mind as something special, something different. And it's also, of course, the subscription is a great way to support Counterpunch in general. If you appreciate reading Counterpunch regularly online for free, no ads, no bullshit, none of that other stuff that you see in a lot of other places, then support Counterpunch with a print subscription. Also, support Counterpunch Radio. Give us a positive review on iTunes. Spread this. Uh, send it to your friends. Uh, recommend it on social media. Bring us to more listeners. Always good. Hopefully, we're going to be branching out in the near future. Um, and one of the ways to help us do that is by recommending us on iTunes with positive reviews, positive ratings. Anyway, um, all of that out of the way, my my little song and dance for myself. Um, I want to turn to my guest, uh, a friend of mine, someone I've talked to a number of times, someone whose work I really respect, Steve Horn. He is an investigative journalist with Desmog Blog. He is a regular contributor to Counterpunch. You can see his stuff on CP all the time. Follow him on Twitter at Steve A. Horn. Uh, Steve Horn, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Good to be here for the first time and hope hope uh hope to come here regularly. Thanks for having yes, me. Yes, absolutely. And um your work is really I think uh, exemplary, if I could say that without sounding like I'm blowing smoke up your ass, because I think that a lot of the stuff that you do is I think really kind of pierces through even the superficial reporting on a lot of issues related to climate change, a lot of issues related to the oil industry, and um, your latest piece, I think, or I guess it's going to be a series of pieces, is really critical. So let's jump into that. Um, You've written recently about this thing called the IOGCC. Tell us what that is and why it's important for people to know it. IOGCC is the Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission. It's been around in the United States now for 80 years, which sounds crazy because we're really just talking about it now and it's been around for such a long time. But it is a compact of the uh, uh, constitutionally, I guess, uh, oriented compact. Uh, Their ability to exist the way they do is because of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, which allows states to compact for common purposes and in this case the purpose is to produce uh and extract oil and gas and so it's 30 of the third actually 38 of the oil and gas producing states 30 are members eight are associate members and basically uh it's been around this long it it, um it's been extremely influential especially in the modern era i would say dating 
from the 1970s onward in the uh, so the, the counter revolution, if you will, uh, to the uh, environmental movement in the 1960s and 70s that created a lot of the environmental protection laws, like the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, and all of that, which we can get into. But basically, um, how it, how it functions is uh, the governors of uh, all of the oil and gas producing states choose representatives to sit on the IOGCC. In many cases, these are the head oil and gas regulators of individual states. In some cases, these are actual lobbyists for the oil and gas industry or attorneys. And above and beyond that, there's the official representatives and there's the at-large members. And the at-large members, uh, governors can pick as many of those as they want and by the majority, if you look at their roster, the directory, which I got my hands on for both 2014 and 2015, um, it's it's actually findable online, but they, they do not make it easy to find, even on the website. If you were to go to the website right now, you'd have a hard time tracking it down because it's not prominently listed. But you can see that the overwhelming, I would say at least you know, the heavy majority are people who work for the industry as executives or lobbyists or that sort of thing. And so this is a body that... Uh, you know, I would say it turns transforms the the quote unquote oil and gas uh, regulators into lobbyists, more or less, in terms of how it functions, and we can talk about that. But it's very influential. It's been, uh, uh, I would say, undermined uh, you know, things like the Safe Drinking Water Act, as it applies to fracking, for example, or another law that I wrote about uh, for an article that just came out called the Resource Conservation. And Recovery Act, and that has to do with oil and gas waste. So it's these seemingly obscure regulatory issues, and they turn the regulators at the state level into basically anti-regulatory lobbyists, more or less. Right. And I think one of the key things that struck me when I was uh, looking at this is that it's done under the guise of conservation. It's done under the guise of like doing a service, uh, not just to the industry. I mean, that's almost self-evident, but as if it's like doing a service to each state economically and as if it's almost doing a service to the environment, you know. So let's talk a little bit about this sort of the public relations side of this. How do they present what they do versus what they actually do? Right. So conservation is a term for that has meant something different for the oil and gas industry than it has meant for environmentalists. Exactly. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, and that's important to point out here. So conservation, and this has been a debate in the organization and how they present themselves and how they get congressional reauthorization and that sort of thing. I think that we should talk about the congressional reauthorization part too. But the uh, conservation for the oil and gas industry was actually in the 1930s uh, the oil and gas industry in the United States was overproducing oil and gas in, in a wasteful way, in, at least in terms of uh, production and marketing of the product. And so they were uh, pumping uh, so much out of the ground in a way that, that, would, that the product itself would just uh, you know, go all over the place. They so just punch a hole in the ground and they didn't really have a distinct, uh, well, a well-planned regulatory regime. What the IOGCC did was locked in this uh, quote-unquote conservationist uh, regulatory regime for the states and, and put these regulators together in a way that they would conserve the product in a way that would be less wasteful. So they talk a lot about waste. And that was, that's actually been the debate is what is waste? And so that, that, this is how the organization has 
tried to reframe itself over the years as it's as it's uh, attempted to regain congressional authorization, uh, especially in the 1970s, 1980s, when Congress was starting to notice some members of Congress starting to notice it, it sure acted like quite a bit like a lobbying organization, a lot less like the compact that they said they were. And so they, they would kind of start to say, uh, well, we're doing X, Y, and Z. And so this is uh, preventing waste of the product. And so it's really shifted because the oil and gas industry has become, you know, in terms of the engineering, become a lot more sophisticated since the 1930s. But the origins are in uh, conservation in that type of way. That is uh, not wasting the product through basically stupid production practices. Right. So when a representative of the IOGCC talks about quote unquote conservation, what they really mean is uh, market control, supply control, being able to uh, more or less uh, have under under the control of the various producers, um, not just the supply, but also being able to affect the the cost both on their end and the cost to consumers. Correct. And I mean, there's a, an academic article that was written. I forgot the academic's name, but he uh, uh, is a professor of geography at Stanford and he studies the oil and gas industry. And basically, he kind of points to the IOGCC historically. I don't think he, he hasn't really studied it from a you know, lobbying or influence peddling aspect, but just looking at the, mar- you know, the market aspects of it. He kind of calls the IOGCC one of the first examples actually of the cartelization what he calls the cartelization of oil and gas so yeah, it is very it is very much about that. and that's it's a whole um you know it's a, it's sort of a different academic or or analytical framework uh through which to look at iogcc and it's one that i've focused on less just because it's not quite as up my alley in terms of what i understand but definitely that's one that's sort of I'd say, and, and through a critical lens, it's kind of the only way that IOGCC has been looked at by academics and people who have, have heard of the organization at all. And the other thing that strikes me in, in, in reading about it, and I'm really curious to get your take on this, is the focus on the states. Because if you look at some of the statements that uh, you and other reporters, including, I want to make sure that she gets credit, uh, Lisa Song of Inside Climate News uh, in her expose about this, that when when you hear from their representatives, they talk about, oh, well, you know, we're not really, we're not really involved at the federal level. Level, we're really focused on the states and we're geared towards each state and that's where the significance is. That's where the punch is. But the reality is that obviously this is not about states on an individual level. This is about the collective push at the larger uh, national level, at the federal level, and that in, in many ways, at least from, from my reading of this, Basically, this notion that they exist at the state level is really sort of a smokescreen for the larger mission that they have. Yeah, and so they do exist at, you know, they haven't, so first of all, they have their headquarters, we, we should go over this, they're headquartered in Oklahoma City, um, where they have been headquartered since the dawn of the organization. And they have a special relationship with the state of Oklahoma and an arrangement basically where uh, their office, their headquarters exist on the same land deed as the governor's mansion and it's also just a few blocks away from the capital um and so they basically exist in oklahoma state uh assets more or less in terms of not only land but also if you look at their website you look at all that it's it's on oklahoma's governmental web domains and everything that comes with that and Unlike a lot of, you know, like a 501c3, you know, or a, uh, you know, 
trade association of the industry. It's kind of unclear exactly how IOGCC goes about having to pay taxes and what you know what kind of write-offs companies get from giving money to IOGCC compared to a 501c3. And so there's all of that, but then there's the additional level uh, of analysis, and that is what the heck do they do in terms of lobbying and advocacy, and that that's related to you know how would they register themselves, and it becomes really clear when you look at the historical you know look, uh, records, uh, archives, just dig, digging online, um, especially on old versions of their website uh, through the Wayback Machine or the Web Archive, and it becomes pretty clear that they. Had you know they they obviously have their state representatives, but throughout their history, especially since the 1970s, they've more and more had their eye on Washington D.C. Uh, especially mm-hmm. uh, in recent years, they had uh, what they called a Washington consultant by the name of Carl Schmid. Uh, they had a more even more recently a guy named Kevin Bliss, who's in that Lisa Song article, who was their quote unquote Washington representative. And basically what he was doing there is what any other person who's in DC representing an organization does uh, when they're meeting with uh, politicians and stuff, they're lobbying. And I mean, he, he's quoted in that article saying, well, we don't, we can't lobby because we're just representing the States. But if you talk to anyone who understands, lobbying ethics laws and uh, what you know what you have to do if you're going to do the type of thing that they're doing even if you are the states you still have to register to lobby and so if you look at one of the articles I wrote you can see that certain states and other activities go ahead and still register to lobby they have people who represent them and go lobby in Washington DC so that 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 uh, whole argument is pretty you know, I would say it's bunk but then there's there's also the fact that since the, you know if you look at uh, in the 1970s, they uh, they were you know they, they would increasingly have their conferences in Washington D.C. to be able to you know uh, you know join up their meetings with uh, lot you know lobby days in D.C. And then if you fast forward, uh, I'm, I'm previewing a future article here on the show, but uh, in the mid 2000s, certain states were actually pitching themselves as possible places for IOGCC to move, and one of those was Kentucky. Uh, the city of Louisville, and uh, representatives in Louisville who were uh, writing letters to IOGCC said, well, hey, look, if you move yourself here, you can be you know, you're this much closer via an airplane to Washington, D.C. And so I think the whole thing is that uh, they've obviously always had their eyes. I'd say if you, and you can look at each topic of regulatory law as it applies to oil and gas industry, especially more recently on environmental protections, they've always had their eye on Washington, D.C. and fighting back against uh, the heavy burden of federal regulations, which would cost the oil and gas industry quite a lot of money. And, and when they talk about these things, they do talk in terms of the dollars and how much it would cost them on, on all these issues in, in their own internal documents. Uh, their website is not too much information on it right now, but when you dig through the historical record, it becomes clear. Yeah, and one of the other things, and you were sort of alluding to it a bit there, Steve, but I want to expand on it if we could, is the way in which the IOGCC really um, exists in in sort of this gray area between what we would 
uh, typically call lobbying or how lobbying is defined, you know, legally speaking. And I guess what they like to call, you know, quote unquote, advocacy. And so talk a little bit about sort of this gray area that they inhabit and why it's important to really highlight that because of, um, you know, how that sort of relates to what they're able to achieve at the state and especially at the federal level. Well, I think one of the others, there are a number of things to to tug at here. Um, One is the fact that by not registering to lobby, um, it transparency reasons, it's extremely difficult unless you have a lot of hours and time on your hands to know what they're doing and and what they're actually pushing for when they do go to Washington, D.C. and talk to politicians or when they do talk to uh, people in the state house and individual states. Uh, I I looked through all of their member states to see if they had ever registered to lobby in in the states, and they never had. I looked through Washington, D.C. I looked at the Senate and House side. They've only registered to lobby a single time. It's its own weird story, which it's not, there's really no need to get into it here, but they're actually lobbying for a uh, museum in Iowa, and it was a favor of the old executive director. So that was the one time they registered. But that's all to say that uh, there's a lack of transparency, and it's hard to know exactly what they do, which of course is uh, at its core anti-democratic. But then there's the bigger... it seems like uh, that's the point, isn't it? That's the, yeah, that's the, I mean, yeah, <laughs> uh, from their perspective, I'm sure that that's the real, they would make their, their PR argument and say, well, we're the states, we don't have to blah, blah, blah. But the real reason is, of course, they don't, they don't want people, they don't want citizens to know uh, what they're doing uh, in their name. But then there's, there's the, I think this is, this is in the, in Lisa Song's article, and this is through a document that I gave her, uh, and that it's one of the the less difficult ones to find. Actually, I was just looking through the congressional record, uh, and then and just looking up stuff that IOGCC was involved in. And if you look at back in the late 1970s, uh, they, this is when they were probably in their most trouble as an organization in terms of congressional scrutiny, uh, and actually United States Department of Justice uh, scrutiny and investigation. And uh, one of the uh, lead uh, attorneys in their antitrust division came forward and said, we no longer see a purpose for IOGCC. They do not do, quote-unquote, conservation anymore as they did in the 1930s. Uh, And basically, uh, they now exist as a lobbying organization. So if they want to lobby, they should go out and and form a lobbying organization and register to lobby. Uh, The the IOGCC has, uh, again, previewing a future article, uh, because all all Lisa Song's article really covered was that DOJ hearing. But if you look at internal uh, emails that they were, or sorry, uh, letters that they were writing to each other, uh, they were really freaking out about this uh, and essentially did everything in their power to ensure that they would never have to do that. And uh, all this is sort of a gap in terms of uh, it's hard to understand exactly how they mechanically did it in Congress. But then all of a sudden you look kind of fast forward to uh, a few years later in congressional hearings, uh, and there was a hearing in which only one senator showed up and basically said, well, hey, yeah, I know you guys don't want to go through this anymore. Um, so kind of like your, uh, you know, the Interstate Mining Compact Commission, which deals with coal mining and other types of mining, uh, you will no longer have to come forward to Congress and be reauthorized every two to three years. 
um, you know, good luck in the future. And, and since then, there's been no congressional scrutiny. Uh, and therefore, I mean, most that's I think that'd be one reason among others why probably most American citizens, even people who pay attention to oil and gas issues and environmental issues, have probably have never heard of this organization. I mean, I, I I'll be honest, I haven't really talked to many people who do even pay attention to these issues closely who've ever heard of it. But I would also go ahead and argue that it's one of the most influential in in the in U.S. context, one of the most influential organizations around oil and gas drilling and anti-regulatory push uh, in, in the United States. Well, and, and part of the reason they're so influential is not just because obviously what they do, it's, it's who they are. I mean, I'm looking through, I'm looking through your article um, from Desmog blog. And, and again, just for, for uh, listeners who might want to check it out, this is dated April 11th headline, introducing IOGCC, the most powerful oil and gas lobby you've never heard of. And in the article, and I correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, I'm not sure if these graphics were yours or from inside climate news, but regardless, um, you look at the graph, and one thing that immediately jumps out at you is that of the 495 members of the IOGCC, 70%, exactly 70% are either from the industry itself or their regulators. And so in my mind, this is now taking it at the broader level. This is a perfect example of what we all talk about when we say the revolving door. I mean, this is like the illustration of the revolving door. It is, and it's, but it's also taking it a step above that. Um, it's also, uh, I think, a really good depiction of how the, how the corporate state works. And how of, capitalism works for that. Part. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, and it's at its deepest level because this is, or at least it's one of the deeper levels because this is not just your, this is not even legislators. This is actually regulators. This is people who deal with arcane uh, laws before they even get to the, the point of being things that are dealt with uh, by your local state representatives. So they have captured it so early in the process in terms of, uh, the regulatory regime that it doesn't even these are definitely uh, of the things that citizens pay attention to uh, you know, regulatory state level regulatory agencies are probably uh, on, on a very low level of, of priorities but this is uh, it's a genius move by them because of course uh, it cuts expenses exponentially in terms of lobbying and advocacy and all of that if you can already have the regulators at the same table at the same meetings as the oil and gas industry, it streamlines all of that. Um, it cuts out all of the, the you know the, the budgetary needs of going ahead and having to lobby at the state level or going in Washington D.C. And so it's only really in moments of crisis where you see them in Washington D.C. spending a lot of money on bills. But, but generally, it's been something where they spend you know several years working at the state level. Uh, getting the conditions they want for the drilling and then maybe at some you know but at some point that at the federal level they'll get an exemption to a law and that's what happened with the energy policy act of 2005 and the what we now call the Halliburton loophole um, which many credit this is a you know the Dick Cheney bill and uh, this was the you know, the Bush administration well actually it was IOGCC uh, was working on this uh, exemption to the safe drinking water act literally for decades, um, even before fracking, uh, just for uh, conventional drilling, uh, as soon as the Safe Drinking Water Act came out, they, 
at least dating back to 1976, and this bill passed in 74. I, I see in historical records they were uh, figuring out their their push against it uh, and in doing the things that lobbying organizations would do to fight and advocacy organizations would do to fight back against that sort of thing. And so, dating you know, going into the 1990s and then into into through 2005. They were fighting in in and with fracking technology coming along. They wanted to fight, you know, the same thing, an exemption to the Safe Drinking Water Act as it applies to horizontal drilling or fracking. And so then fast forwarding to what's in the article, uh, you you go to September two thousand five and you actually see this is the month after that bill passed, you see IOGCC actually claimed credit for that. But this was a product of a long uh, you know, under the radar push. On their part, so much so that even 10 years, 11 years after the fact, I think most people would still say, well, this is because Dick Cheney was, you know, the Halliburton CEO before he came to the White House. And so this was a favor to Halliburton. Of course, Halliburton was at the table as well, but they were at the table. They were in conference calls, uh, you know, for at different uh you know, you know, for the you know the the famous court case, Leaf v. EPA, which was the court case that preceded uh, the Energy Policy Act 2005 and uh, kind of set the groundwork for that bill and the exemption. They were in those conference calls with IOGCC. IOGCC was an intervener in that case, so was Halliburton. So I think we have to you know, we have to position IOGCC as a major player alongside Halliburton in that whole episode. Yeah, and in, and in, and in many ways, what they're what they did there, um, the so-called Halliburton loophole, as you kind of mentioned, is really the culmination of a much longer process that is not even specific to fracking. That this is really about the way in which a let's call it the representative of an industry, the IOGCC being the representative of an industry, uh, has worked to undermine what I think many of us would regard as one of the most important pieces of progressive legislation that we've had in the last 50 years. Totally. And I mean, this was a, you know, a lot of these laws are products of hard fights in the 1960s. And uh, people always say, well, you do realize that uh, these bills were introduced by Richard Nixon, right? Like on environmental policy, Richard Nixon was one of the most quote unquote progressive presidents of, of all time. Well, it wasn't because Richard Nixon it was because they were, people in the streets fighting uh, real grassroots movements in the 1960s on these issues. Uh, Richard Nixon just happened to be in the White House at this time. And so you fast forward to after that, and that's why I always say on oil and gas issues, uh, I don't always say it, I started to recently frame it this way. IOGCC was just such a key piece of the, of the counter-revolution uh, in, the next, in the coming decades after that of all of these laws as they apply to oil and gas. So you look at things like oil and gas waste, you look at the Safe Drinking Water Act, and you see that IOGCC uh, basically uh, exempted the oil and gas industry from from complying with those bills in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the last thing I want to get into before we go into break is this, um, um, this how should we say it? it? 
IOGCC as basically the originator of what becomes legislation. It's not just that they're undermining legislation that exists, undermining the Safe Drinking Water Act and things like that, but they're actually creating the uh, policy that then gets adopted by each of these states. And when I was reading that, it instantly reminded me of, and then you alluded to it in the article, ALEC, right? The American Legislative Exchange Council, which basically is the originator of so many of the bills that we see passed through uh, uh, reactionary bills, I should say, really destructive mm-hmm. bills uh, that pass through all of these state legislatures. So talk a little bit about that. And basically, would you agree that IOGCC is in many ways the oil and gas industry's version of Alex? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, first of all, the uh, like you said, IOGCC does these model resolutions uh, that every year they have certain ones that pass. And uh, I think the one of the interesting differences between IOGCC and ALEC is that, um, and I don't know if ALEC does this, I don't know if anyone's ever proven it, but I know that in the case of IOGCC, every model resolution has and they do not publish this online, by the way. So you have to figure this out through a records request or uh, maybe if you're lucky, you, you like I did, if you search hard enough online, you can find a copy of it. But basically, they, they have what they call action plans. And every model resolution must have an action plan. And so a lot of times, unlike ALEC, ALEC, what they do is they write these model bills that are actually going to be handed to legislators who are the members of ALEC, and then they, they go to the state houses, and those magically become bills that are introduced generally by you know, reactionary right-wing Republican legislators. What IOGCC does is they use their bills and these resolutions more so as advocacy and PR tools, and on gen- a lot of times they're on general principles. And so what they'll say is, okay, here you know, some examples are, we as a general rule believe that the federal government should not be involved at all on, th- on federal lands and the states should take over and should have primacy over these lands. And so we're going to use these bills uh, and we're going to go, uh, we want you to go talk to the Department of Interior and we want you to go talk to the president and we want you to go talk to the EPA and so these are tools, these are things that they then go hold in their hands when they go or send through email or however they communicate. And they use these, um, you know, as educational, mecha- what they call educational mechanisms. So these generally these types of resolutions are on broad themes. Uh, on some things, they have model statutes in terms of how to, you know, more specifically to oil and gas drilling and how to unitize, uh, you know, drilling and all of that. And I think that, it's, it's something that just the industry as an industry agrees on. But in terms of how it plays out, it's a little different. Um, I haven't really seen where they have something that, except for in one case, where they have something that really goes state by state. And this, this is actually in the Inside Climate News piece, and that's on the Energy Policy Act of 2005 and the Safe Drinking Water Act exemption, where they actually went state to state and got like a dozen of them introduced. And this was basically to fight off uh, in 2009, something called the Frack Act, which would have made the industry disclose the chemicals that they were injecting into the ground. Um, they fought hard against that, and they won that battle. And that was through kind of an ALEC-like thing where it passed a lot of states. But generally, they're on 
it's a, it's an advocacy tool. It's a PR tool. Um, and it still works. It's just, it's a different way to skin the cat. Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of like, you know, the quote unquote, the fact sheet, right, which is just these pre, uh, you know, pre digested talking points, basically, that they can give to these legislators and these, you know, these various people in important positions. But then you also have the model legislation, like you were referring to with this 2009, with this 2009 piece, which is, as you see in the Inside Climate News article, is actually is it's basically word for word almost mm-hmm. in each of these like what is at least a dozen states that are listed here if not more Oklahoma North Dakota Utah Louisiana Alabama Wyoming uh, I think yeah I mean probably more as well I mean yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it's word for word you know what I mean so that is basically Alex so what you're getting at then is that they sort of approach it from multiple angles. Sometimes when it's necessary, it's basically given to them as legislation. When it's not necessary, it's kind of like, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea that you guys do this? Exactly, yeah. And um, yeah, just to go to that 2009 example, I mean, they're, they're pretty proud of it, at least in the case of Utah, where uh, looking at the, the record, the you know, if you listen to the hearing, you can see that their head, one of their head, the head guys in Utah, John Baza of the oil and gas, uh, the regulatory uh, agency there, he got up at two hearings, both in the Senate and the House, and said, well, yeah, I got this from IOGCC. Here's what it does, uh, blah, blah, blah. So not, and there's, at least to date, there's, there's no shame in this. I mean, maybe because there's no scrutiny, so they didn't think anyone was watching. Maybe, maybe that will change. Um, hoping you know hope, hopefully this reporting will have some impact but uh yeah as of now i mean they've been like i said they had the 2005 newsletter where they brag about it they've been pretty uh tra- you know transparent about it in terms of openly saying it at things like this and uh i expect that approach to change now that more people are watching i think that they're gonna downplay uh the impact they've had Absolutely. All right, let's take a break. Um, On the other side of the break, a lot more to discuss. I'm chatting with Steve Horn. Follow him on Twitter at Steve A. Horn and uh, his excellent work at Desmog Blog. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Steve Horn. We're talking about the IOGCC, its relationship to not just the oil and gas industry, but how things actually work at the state level and the federal level. And um, one of the other things that, that I think is important, and you bring this out in some of your other work and the work that I want to highlight now, is it's not just about lobbying. We have IOGCC. We know now how this organization functions, but we also know the well-placed, highly placed individuals within the establishment of both political parties that really work uh, in advocacy for various energy interests. This is obviously not news to anybody, but being that we're in the middle of this, uh, this, this drama, this kabuki theater dance of U.S. presidential elections, I think it is important to highlight some of this, particularly because of the way in which certain candidates have been presented. Um, you had an excellent piece a couple of weeks ago, uh, dated April 7th, uh, headline, Top Hillary Clinton Campaign Fundraiser Lobbies for Offshore Drilling in Israel. Um, so tell us a little bit about who you're talking about, and then let's let's go drill down <laughs> get it even <laughs> even deeper into um the lobbying organizations and how they relate to the fundraising organizations um so tell us about this uh connection with the Clinton campaign who this is and what he's doing so this article is about a guy by the name of Jackson Dunn who formerly uh worked in the Bill Clinton White House as a high level economic advisor and eventually, obviously close with Bill Clinton, remained close with Hillary Clinton, uh, and uh, ended up getting a job as a lobbyist today at, at a firm by the name of FTI Consulting or FTI Governmental Affairs as their subsidiary where he lobbies. And one of his clients, as the article points out, is Noble Energy, which uh, in of itself, uh, wouldn't necessarily point to Israel. Uh, but in this case, if you look at the lobbying disclosure form, uh, his form says that on behalf of Noble, he is uh, pushing for uh, things related to uh, the Eastern Mediterranean. And of course, that's where Noble Energy uh, has assets, uh, offshore uh, gas assets that they've been pushing to drill, uh, and they've just actually faced a setback in Israel because the Supreme Court there ruled uh, just about a month ago that the conditions under which they, the contract, the concessions that they got were akin to a monopoly, and they will have one year to renegotiate those terms or they just have to get out of Israel. And so that's sort of where that was, that was uh, you know, a contract uh, that was... Uh, facilitated by Bibi Netanyahu in Israel. Uh, that's uh, although the occupation is something that uh, has not been as controversial in Israel, and there's a, a, you know, not much of Israel will actually rise up against it. Uh, in Israel, that has been something that Israelis have been pretty angry about. That is the, the stuff with Noble Energy, and there's been a lot of protests over it. And so uh, that is the sort of the what's been happening on the Israeli side. If you look at uh, Jackson Dunn and FTI Consulting on the American side of things. FTI Consulting is actually a firm that I was familiar with because 
they run something called Energy in Depth, which is a front group for the oil and gas industry that was set up by the Independent uh, Petroleum Association of America back in 2009, uh, which actually ties into the IRGCC stuff nicely. Uh, so also, it was set up as a backlash against uh, you know the disclosure of fracking chemicals, and so uh, this organization. Uh, was sort of swallowed up by FTI Consulting. Uh, and so it's run, you know, the people who work for Energy in Depth now are actually employees of FTI Consulting. And so basically they're colleagues of Jackson Dunn. It's a huge consulting company, but uh, Dunn is among other well-placed, uh, you know, Clinton loyalists who are lobbying for oil and gas. And I say well-placed because, one of the big arguments that uh, Hillary Clinton has been making on the campaign trail is that, well, I don't get that much money from the oil and gas industry. Uh, look at me compared to the Republican Party. And you know, when she said she was really sick of, of Bernie Sanders saying that, that was her argument is that these are, this is coming from employees, you know, low-level employees of the industry, the, the, the campaign money and the, and the bundled money. In reality, what's the most important here is the connections to the powerful people, the people like Jackson Dunn, uh, the, the, and and others, which we can talk about. But I think that the whole you look at the, the whole premise. One of the big premises of this article, besides the whole Israel part, is the fact that these are. It's not just. It's not the amount of money per se. It's the. It's the the people themselves that she's connected. This is her social circle. These are the people that. Uh, she will be doing the bidding of. She's not going to betray the people she's closest of when she gets to the White House, or else it's very unlikely. And so I think that that is why uh, the Jackson Dunn story is important. It's for, also you know, the, it's one of the reasons. It's also the placement, isn't it? Because really, if you think about it, it's not just you know the amount of money that's changing hands. It's the interpersonal relationships that exist. I mean, one of the things that's really striking about your piece is the fact that uh, FTI Consulting, which is, you know, the, the the parent group, I guess now, of Energy In-Depth, that they are literally physically located in the same building with oh, yeah. Tenio Holdings. Tenio Holdings being the employer uh, and, and connected to Huma Abedin, who is one of the closest advisors to Hillary Clinton, the wife of uh, uh, the... Uh, Anthony Weiner here in New York. Obviously, there is this very incestuous relationship happening here between the energy industry, its lobbyists, and the Clinton, uh, you know, machine. And of course, it's done in a very let's call it an informal way, because I don't think anybody would be surprised to learn that the Clintons are pretty smooth operators when it comes to provide, uh, you know, presenting a distance between themselves and these lobbyists while being in bed with them. Right. And I'm glad you brought up the Tenio thing. Uh, yeah, the same in, in, uh, DC, uh, their offices are uh, right, ne- right near each other in the same office building. <laughs> I mean, come on, they're and, going out to lunch together. You know, exactly. they're going to get coffee. They're getting drinks on Friday after work. You know, I mean, it's obvious what's happening. Right. And, and, and even at Tenio, if you, if you want to point to the Israel connections now, George Mitchell is, a, is, uh, you know, a consultant at Tenio. He was, of course, the, the quote unquote peace broker between, uh, Israel and Palestine, uh, under Obama and under Clinton. Um, and, and other well-connected people, Doug Band, who was a, uh, high level, uh, aide 
to uh, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton himself was at one point a consultant at Tanio Consulting. Um, and this is, of course, controversial in some ways because, uh, yeah, you mentioned Huma Abedin. She at one point was both on the State Department payroll and the Taneo payroll at the same time. Um, and, and so that was one of the, you know, that was... Uh, highly a, criminal, highly criminal. Yeah, yeah, akin to the email stuff where Hillary had her, uh, you know, had her emails on a private uh, server, uh, you know, state emails on her own, at her house. I think that would, that ranks up there with... Uh, well, yeah, among the the scandals of the of the Clintons, that that ranks up there highly. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the Taneo is definitely uh, worthy of even more scrutiny. And unfortunately, the only, really the biggest scrutiny that they've gotten has been from the right wing and in the right wing media. And they've done some good job a good job taking stuff up. But their their actual analysis uh, obviously has limitations, being it's coming from the right wing. But in terms of pointing out a lot of the connections, one of the only places you can get that from right now is from places like, uh, you know, the Daily Caller and, and other websites like that. But I've, I've actually learned a lot from their reporting. Yeah, I mean, anything that they report on with regard to Hillary and, and the Clintons is is usually worth paying attention to, if for no other reason, because when it comes to taking down Hillary, they're, they're, they're pretty much spot on. Um, they frame it, obviously, in, in a generally stupid way, but that's beside the point. <laughs> Um, the other thing here that, that, that is striking now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, cause I'm, I'm not positive when we're talking about noble energy in the Eastern Mediterranean, this is the Leviathan field, correct? Correct. Yeah. Now this is actually tied into the geopolitical, um, you know, and the, the imperialism or, or Israeli settler colonialism question, because a lot of people have argued that it is the Leviathan gas field off the coast of Gaza, Gaza that is one yeah. of the main drivers for why the Israelis maintain the siege of Gaza, that it is not simply about, quote-unquote, punishing Hamas, it's not even really about terrorism or any of that other stuff, that it's actually about cutting off any attempts by Gaza and its government to assert any territorial water rights over the gas. Yeah, and I, I'm, I uh, unfortunately, I just haven't paid... I, I claim some more recent days ignorance of uh, what's been going on in Israel, Palestine, and as far as that goes. Although now that you say it, that that does ring a bell, and I, I, none none of what you just said surprised me. And so I, I think that I may have read that from uh, Nafiz Ahmed, who used to write for the Guardian. And um, yeah, I thought that of course uh, there. I'll go one step further. Um, if you look at uh, who's you know who you know? Look at APAC and who's now working for Noble Energy. It was a guy by the name of Benny Zomer who was uh, a lobbyist for APAC in the United States. Well, he did quote unquote Aliyah, went moved to Israel, and now he's the country uh, director for Noble Energy uh, in that. Israel. Yeah, so I mean, I would say that uh, yeah, that, none of what you said would surprise me. That's all. That's all I can really contribute, but it, of course, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and and again, there's there's uh, regional geopolitical 
uh, implications to this as well, because in in recent months, I, well, I guess in the last twelve months, there has been uh, major discoveries of potentially huge uh, gas reserves also off the coast of Egypt. So now you have another player entering into the fray here, and so I think that whole region stretching from uh, the eastern Mediterranean off the coast of uh, Israel, Palestine, Gaza, stretching all the way down to the coast uh, off the coast of. Egypt, that entire block is now really sort of up for grabs. And so a lot of the regional geopolitical issues, a lot of the regional, uh, you know, issues that whether it pertains directly to Egypt, the Sinai, Israel, Gaza, Palestine, all of this really needs to be seen in the context of offshore energy extraction. Yeah. And that gets to, uh, you know, I, I mentioned APEC, that gets to, you know, who was at APAC just recently? Who was speaking at APAC? Well, that's Hillary Clinton. Who else was there? Donald Trump. And, and uh, of course, it, it speaks to the power of APAC and the Israel lobby. But what is the Israel lobby and who represents the Israel lobby and who, who goes to APAC's meetings? Well, one of the people who's been showing up at APAC's meetings in recent years is a guy like Benny Zomer, who formerly APAC, now Noble Energy. Uh, every year at APAC, um, if you look at the agenda in recent years, energy has been on their meeting agenda. They're not just talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict. They're definitely talking about this very issue at their own meetings. And I think that it's it's an under-scrutinized part of uh, what's happening right now in Palestine or off- offshore of Palestine, in, in this case, and off the shore of Gaza and in this whole in this pocket in the Mediterranean Uh Obviously, the occupation is mendacious in of itself. Um, it has its own uh, story to tell. But I think that if you look at what's happening uh, in the sea, uh, that's that may you know, it, it may speak volumes about why the occupation continues um, and will continue for some time. Yeah, and and you pointed this out in a, I think in a couple of pieces I've written about it as well that um, this this Donald Trump question, which I think is important. Um, Namely, that there's a lot of people um, who have presented Donald Trump as, you know, a quote unquote, a threat to the establishment. In other words, when you see Donald Trump on the stage in a Republican debate talking about how you need to be, you know, even handed in dealing or not picking favorites in dealing with the Israel-Palestine question, Israelis and Palestinians, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, well, that's actually pretty good. It's amazing to hear a Republican saying that, wow, maybe Donald Trump is a, you know, anti-imperialist candidate on the right. You know, this sort Sort of stuff, but when you dig even a little bit into his advisory team, you you dig up the fact that people like Walid Faraz, the arch neocon, you know the um, you know supporter of the slaughter of Palestinians during the Lebanon War, he is one of the you know uh, advisor to Donald Trump, formerly an advisor to Mitt Romney in 2012. You look deeper, you're talking about the former Inspector General under the Bush administration who presided over torture, military contractors, mercenary representatives, and then you come to this guy, George Papadopoulos. And, you know, a lot of the media 
scrutiny around Tim was focused on his age and all this silly stuff about having been at the Model UN and whatever. But I think the real key is that he is a major advocate of Israeli offshore drilling and the and the uh, supply of Israeli energy to the European market. And mm-hmm. this then brings us to the question, is Donald Trump genuine when he says that he wants to be, quote unquote, even handed and, quote unquote, make a deal between the Israelis and Palestinians? I would argue no, that in fact, his people are interested in the very same thing that Hillary's people are interested in. I mean, first of all, they, yeah, they both spoke at, at APAC, and uh, the, the, the APAC speech was the very first time where Donald Trump actually spoke in front of a teleprompter, which shows uh, how careful uh, he will be not to make uh, you know the Israel lobby angry. Um, and, and again, it, it, wants to, it basically shows it. He's not going to be an anti-establishment candidate uh, on this issue. And me, obviously, this is a guy who's in the establishment. This is a, a multi-billionaire who has made a career out of making friends with the establishment, making deals, you know, the art of the deal with the establishment, to quote his book. But on this issue, um, you look at, yeah, you mentioned George Papadopoulos, who the media made a joke, uh, as you said, of his age. Uh, the reality is that he came into his position uh, as a former employee of the Hudson Institute, which is tied right into this issue. Uh, one of the award winners of the first award winner of a major award that they recently began to give out for global leadership went to uh, their CEO uh, a few years ago. And uh, they've been pushing this whole notion of energy energy security for Israel uh, and offshore drilling in the Mediterranean hard in the past several years. George Papadopoulos has written multiple reports, uh, had written multiple reports for the Hudson Institute next to uh, and co-authored or at least researched with a guy by the name of Seth Cropsey, who has been a signatory, who was a signatory to multiple projects for a new American century document, which is the neoconservative, uh, I don't know how you really describe it, except for a collective that comes together and and has formed agreements on certain foreign policy topics. It's not really a think tank. So he, you know, through across the uh, George Capodoblis is kind of connected to that whole, you know, the neocon wing of the Republican party. Um, there's well, really and, no, and they morphed. They morphed into what's now called the Center for a New American Security, and that is an, a formal think tank, which is in effect really the uh, successor to the Project for a New American Century. Mm-hmm. Robert Kagan, Bill Kristol, all of the usual suspects—they're all part of that. Right, and so I mean, I think that there obviously are some people, even within the neoconservative establishment, who do not. Not like uh, Donald Trump for certain reasons. I think a lot of it just has to do with his personality rather than policy. But I think at the end of the day, they're going to come to terms with that and realize so this is their guy um, and they're going to get behind him. And they, I think for now, it's it's more, I, I would say, a lot of the backlash against Trump on, on the right wing in, in the, the, the Republican establishment is more of a charade. Um, and making him out to be worse than than he really is when he really stands in line with a lot of the policies they push. He just is a little bit more blunt and on and and I would say honest in the way that he says it and frames it and doesn't cloak it in 
language. He just comes right out there and is is very racist in his rhetoric. Um, doesn't doesn't try to butter it up the way that people in the GOP establishment do. And I think that they're uncomfortable with that from that perspective. But in terms of being anti-establishment, that that just there's just really no evidence in it if you look at who he's surrounding himself with so far. Well, and I guess the main difference is that um, it's it's not so much that he's anti-establishment. It's just that the difference, what, what they fear about Trump is that unlike most of the candidates that they manufacture, Trump is not beholden to them financially in the same way. Trump has a level of financial independence that allows him to sort of speak the way that he wants to speak and say what he wants to say. He's not necessarily dependent upon getting a major, you know, high paid executive job after he would leave office. So there's, there's less leverage that they have to control him. That's not to say that they're somehow not ideologically aligned. Although one area where I do think there might be, uh, trepidation on the side of the neocons is that uh, Trump does seem, and you know, maybe this won't necessarily translate into a potential presidency, but Trump does seem at least a, le- a little bit less inclined to warmonger against Russia. Uh, mm-hmm. That is one area where the neocons are particularly unhinged uh, in terms of really pushing the, pushing the envelope as far as world war with Russia. That and probably you know, China too. I think he would be less hawkish. Um, well, he's actually more that. hawkish uh, oh, economically. More hawkish economically uh. on China, I think where he would be a little bit more cautious would be in provoking them in the South China Sea militarily. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's sort of a mixed bag with Donald Trump. But as you as you were alluding to, and I agree. Ultimately, is Donald Trump anything but part of the establishment? I would say no. Right, just by definition, based on his background. Regardless, his whole uh, rise in the political arena, um, alongside the, the the you know the primary between Bernie Sanders and Clinton, and all the dynamics that that entails, has basically made has really made 2016 at least interesting to watch and, and analyze from my perspective. Yeah, I would I would agree. And the, the other thing, too, is we should remember that back last summer, um, I had written a piece about this. The Koch brothers were trying to freeze Donald Trump out, right? They were trying to freeze him out of a lot of the mechanisms by which a person runs a campaign, including access to polling data, access to voter registration rules, access to a lot of the, uh, you know, uh, nuts and bolts uh, that campaigns need. And the Koch brothers machine was trying to freeze him out. Why? Because Trump comes from a, I would say, a different wing of the establishment where the Koch brothers and that right wing establishment is really, you know, deeply connected to finance capital, to the Wall Street machine, to, you know, let's call it legal uh, 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 organized crime. Trump is actually connected to real organized crime from the casino industry, uh, you know, the Italian mobsters that he dealt with in Philly and Atlantic City, the Russian gangsters and the Turkish gangsters and the Chinese gangsters. But this is, and this is the last thing I want to say about that, this is the nexus point, right? Sheldon Adelson. Okay, the arch neocon uh, Zionist, you know, pro Israel uh, billionaire is good friends with Donald Trump. So I mean, do we really? Yeah. Do, do we really think that Trump is anything but simply an adjunct of the same arms? 
Yeah, and I mean that's uh, that's interesting because of course Adelson's been such a, a sugar daddy of the right wing in recent years uh, in the GOP, and so how that will play out and the, the split in the right wing will be interesting to watch for sure. I think that the the, the Coke machine has started to pool its its money and resources more into Congress and given up on the presidency altogether in terms of uh, its reach but it's always interesting to see to see how the ruling class splits and in, in, in which factions um, it's moving in uh, you know Hillary has her own supporters which are maybe different than even both of the ones that we just mentioned whether it's the Cokes whether it's the, the actual organized crime she has you know she has Wall Street she has uh, finance she has uh, hedge funds she has yes. private equity. Yep. So um, it's been, uh, I think the common theme, though, is that they're all, all of them are backed by some faction. All, all the ones we just mentioned are, mentioned are backed by some faction of the ruling class. Yeah, and the, and the other thing about it that I keep saying to people is, does anybody really believe that a neocon would be disappointed with a Hillary Clinton presidency? Come on, you know they're aligning behind her secretly anyway, because Hillary Clinton is, for all intents and purposes, an all but name a neocon. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, no, no disagreements there. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Again, yeah, nothing really to say on that. But so anyway, all right, Steve, we're we're pretty much out of time. Give us a taste of what's coming up from you. Uh, I know you got more coming on the IOGCC. Tell people what to expect and where they should go to find it. Yeah, um, stay tuned for more IOGCC stuff, including uh, more on the history of how they've carved out the niche that they have uh, with Congress and uh, the lobbying exemptions and all of that, and much more uh, about their actual impacts on you know, what policies they've been pushing and how they've impacted the well, what we have in place today, whether it's on fracking or offshore drilling. And that this will all be on DSmog blog. I actually hope to eventually turn this into some sort of ebook or something where it can be well organized into chapters and all of that and, and read like a you know like a book. Uh, it's kind of hard when you're just writing articles about it to really set up the correct analytical framework and and all of that. So that that's a project for the future. But for now, just stay tuned for the articles and um, I'll also be covering Hillary Clinton closely. So stay tuned for that too. Very good. And hopefully all that stuff will, will get republished on Counterpunch so that people who are regulars on CP can also find it. Follow Steve's work. His his, his investigations are, I think, some of the best uh, in regards to the oil and gas industry, climate change, all those those uh, related issues. DSmog blog. Follow him on Twitter at, at uh, Steve A. Horn. Steve Horn, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thanks again. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. 